0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I'm your host. If you would please interact with the product a little bit, like, comment, subscribe, share. All of that good stuff helps us out. (sighs) Yeah, just get the spiel out of the way at the beginning. I mean... I say that hoping that it kind of starts to catch on, and a few of you will, but... I tend to think that anyone listening has already done that, and at this point, you know, it's a little bit at the mercy of forces beyond my control how much, uh, if at all, the show grows. Uh, Sorry, I'm going to be a little bit down this week, I think, for a couple of reasons, Uh, some of which we'll get into here. But on this episode, we'll be talking about last night, not yesterday morning, rather, UFC 267. The UFC, this was free for uh, anyone in the United States with an ESPN Plus subscription. Two title fights, really good card top to bottom. Uh, not a whole lot of complaints to be had about this card, with maybe the following exception. I really, really, watching this event, retroactively hated everything else from the month of October even more because so much of this card could have been spaced out to include better fights on any of those ESPN Plus cards. I mean just so many of them. So many of them. I mean most of these would have most of which would have been better main events than the last two. Last sorry, two of the last three. Most recent was Paulo Costa and Marvin Vittori. And, okay, fair play, good main event, and wound up being a mostly enjoyable fight. But the weeks before that were, like, Aspen Ladd and Norma Dumont and then Mackenzie Dern and Hadrin, uh, Marina Rodriguez. Like, come on. So, we'll be reviewing that, and this coming Saturday, the, uh, 267 took place in Abu Dhabi. Uh 268 this coming Saturday will be in Madison Square Garden and features another couple of title fights and a killer lightweight fight. Uh, Justin Gaethje and Michael Chandler are going to fight and somebody's going to die. <laughs> it's going to be great. So we'll have a review and a preview. and I That's probably going to be the majority of this. Not only has the news been a little bit light, but I I don't want to take forever... Uh, talking about smaller news items. I don't need the podcast to be an eternity long. So, all right, let's jump into UFC 267. Ah, your main event for the UFC light heavyweight title. Old man Glover Teixeira, 42 years old, just a couple of, like a couple of days removed from his birthday party. Birthday, sorry. I don't know when he had the party. Defeats. Champion Jan Blahovic via second-round submission. He is now the second-oldest champion in UFC history. This was... I, I need to... I, I double-checked this. This was the second-oldest title fight in UFC history. The combined ages of Michael Bisbing and Dan Henderson when they fought for the middleweight title was greater than this. But still... I mean... God, that fight! Can we all we we all agree, right? That fight was a mistake, just a categorical mistake. <laughs> uh, but it did happen. I mean, look, I'm one of those people who stops who tracks the the history of the UFC middleweight title goes from Luke Rockhold to Robert Whitaker. I don't mean to, di- I'm not trying to disparage Michael Bisbinger's or his title win, which was legitimate and incredible. But man, everything that happened after—everything. I mean, it was he. Fellow, you don't remember? He took that quasi-celebrity fight with Dan Henderson in Henderson's last MMA fight, trying to capitalize on their fight from UFC 100. More than half of the fans that were watching during UFC 100 aren't even watching. weren't even watching when this fight took place. But they decided to try and make it for commercial reasons, and it didn't exactly deliver commercially. Then, Bisbing was out for a bit. Then he fought GSP in another celebrity fight that was purely a cash grab. And GSP wins, and then GSP vacates, and they promote Robert Whitaker to full champion. So you might be able to understand why I tend to ignore-slash-forget-Michael Bisbing's little hiatus with the title, and just track the real one... (laughs) Straight from Rockhold to Whitaker, at least in my head. But that was the oldest. This one, second oldest. You had a 30. Again, you had uh, Blahovic is 38. He'll be he'll be 39 in February. Uh, And Glover again just turned 42. Uh, As for the fight itself, I said last week uh, I was leaning towards Blahovich. But, wouldn't be shocked if Teixeira won. And, the other thing I... I think the other thing that I said that I believe was accurate. When it comes down to the grappling... Blahovich is the harder puncher. Teixeira is the better grappler. But grappling at light heavyweight and heavyweight is largely about who's on top more than anything else. You don't have to be a great grappler at heavyweight to be... to have success from top position. And when you are a really good grappler, like Glover Teixeira is, that just makes things easier. Uh, Teixeira got a pretty quick takedown in the first. Blahovic got a little bit too back on his heels and got backed up to the fence very, very easily. Got taken down away from the cage, and the rest of the round was just half guard, was full guard, rather. Blahovich closed his guard, tried to tie up and control posture, and either just ice the round or hope for a stand-up. Teixeira, by and large, did enough looking to pass, ground and pound work, etc. to avoid being stood up. Uneventful round, but a pretty clear round for Teixeira. Second round comes out, and again, Teixeira's backing Blahovich up. It's weird because it's not that Blahovich can't fight off backing up, he's not very good at it, but he can kind of do it if, if very necessary. But they uh, he defends a few different takedown attempts in the second round as Blahovic, and then they get close and they trade left hooks, and Teixeira just has a better read on the distance when they threw them. They ch- they exchange, and Blahovic's just catches Glover more with the forearm, kind of clubbing him, whereas Teixeira lands a good punch, and that wobbles Blahovic. Tishera's is then able to force him back to the fence, pick his ankle, um, it's a bit of an odd decision here, as well as this. So, to share us up against the fence, he's got his base spread out, and Glover reaches down and picks his right ankle. A very nice kind of low ankle pick. Um, normally, when you say something about you know the low single, uh, you need your shoulder all the way on the ground. If you want to see what the low single looks like. Um, Uh, Oh, Kale Sanderson. Watch his... Look at some of his amateur wrestling bouts and you'll see it in spectacular form. Uh, But he didn't quite do that. Again, he got it, picked it up, and around the same time, it looked like Blahovich kind of started fishing for a Kimura. Now, I... I don't think he pulled guard. I think... My read on the... I've seen some weird discussion around this, so I just want to bring up my take. I think he felt he was going down anyway, and if I'm going down, I may as well grab this and see if I can get it, get some motion going. Uh, it's set, something like that. I don't think he was like, oh, I've got this guy. I've got you know, Glover Teixeira, a, you know, a black belt of non-trivial skill who's had a lot of success grappling. I'm going to Kimura this guy. I do not I don't think that was the plan. I tend to think he was, knew he was going down, and rather than just go down and be stuck in half guard, maybe try to get something to generate a little motion. Uh, didn't work. Get stuck in half guard, Glover passes to mount, lands some punches, gets the back, chokes him out, we're done. And the feel-good story of the year, I suppose, uh, I shouldn't be gloved about that. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say technically about this. Uh, I've said before, light heavyweight as a division is just kind of dead to me at this point. I don't care. Uh, Consequently, I... It's been good for my fandom, actually, to abandon it. To any of you out there who do enjoy it, I'm not... I'm not encouraging you to abandon something you genuinely enjoy. I am saying to you, if this division is a non-factor for you, it's okay. It's... It's not in a good spot as a division, um, but uh, so point there. I still don't really think I have a great handle on why Jan Blahovic is successful and has in his run up to the title. It's not that I don't have ideas, but I I do not feel like I have a very good grasp on why he consistently wins and that's that's a problem you know for me as uh if i want to understand the man i i'm not sure what leads to the majority of his success i mean it's one thing to say he's got power yeah he's got power dude hits hard dude kicks hard he kicks like a mule he's got okay blitz attacks he's got decent pocket awareness he's a good enough grappler on top I suppose but his takedown defense is I don't want to say it's bad because it's not bad it's been a bit of a weakness I think more troubling coming out of this fight was his cage craft I mean Dominic Reyes had kind of the same thing with him if you I mean don't get me wrong Jan won that fight easily it turned out but if you watch it, there's a lot of times when Reyes is able to push Blahovich back towards the fence. Blahovich has decided he didn't want to be there, and would then launch a blitz attack to force Reyes and Reyes would back up, and we saw a lot of that. Um, you're not really. A, while Israel Adesanya is happy to put you on the fence, he he doesn't need you there. So I think when uh, when Blahovich fought Adesanya, uh, it, the cage. Craft elements in that respect in that fight weren't as important. I don't want to say they weren't important. Neither man was using a tremendous amount of movement around the cage. There was a lot of feinting, a lot of sliding, but there wasn't a lot of perpetual motion where, uh, and so it didn't really come into play. Here, Teixeira got him to the fence very, very easily. And that's uh, that's troubling. That's fairly troubling. I think the other thing that made Teixeira very successful here is two-way fighting. I tend to think anyone who comes out with one game plan against Jan Blachowicz is probably going to struggle, if not outright lose. Luke Rockhold came at him and wanted to do nothing but grapple, and he got knocked out. Israel Adesanya came at him and wanted to do nothing but strike and found okay success at certain points, but ultimately lost. I The people who have troubled him tend to be those who mix things up, and while Glover Teixeira is a grappler at this point in his career first and foremost, he's got hands, and I think that played a pretty big factor in this. Bolhovich was stuffing all of those takedowns in the second round until he got caught with that left hook. Suddenly, he's got to think about different things. and His brain's a little bit rattled, and then you're against the fence, and this time you're not hand-fighting correctly. And now you're on your back, and Glover's on top of you, and Glover Teixeira has a really good passing game, and his back control uh, is heavy. You don't see too many people escape Glover Teixeira if he's on their back. Not saying never, but it's hard. Uh, and if he gets you belly down in particular, man... Uh, he's done this to a bunch of people. He doesn't just get you flat. He arches your back. Like, he gets so much downward pressure with his hips, he turns you from being flat on the ground to a a, a bow. And it's... That's a nightmare to try and deal with. Uh, I... I think that... uh, I think that kind of played a pretty big factor into this, um... Yeah, good on Glover Teixeira. He had a pretty specific game plan, and he was able to make it work. So, good on him. Uh, Do I want to wax poetic? Yeah, sure. Why not? I I don't do this very often, so perhaps you'll indulge me. Uh, Watching Glover Teixeira climb the mountain and finally get to the top didn't really affect me emotionally the way it did other people but you have to be more dead inside than I am to not feel something. Here's a guy who had to overcome so many hurdles. He, I mean, for those of you who may not know, his professional debut was, oh, 2002? Double-check that. Yeah. His professional debut was in 2002 at WEC 3, believe it or not, and he lost. He got stopped in the second round. Now, that's not uncommon, even for very, very good fighters to lose somewhere in their first three to four fights. He wins two, loses to Ed Herman, then goes on his very long winning streak. That includes some WEC stuff. But most of it was in Brazil. He had a lot of uh, visa issues trying to get to the United States. He finally does and wins several fights in the UFC, some more impressive than others, gets a title shot and has nothing at all for Jon Jones in 2013. And look, that just kind of felt like, okay, you know, he was a worthy contender when he got there. Uh, He No one was complaining about him getting a title shot. Not really, at least. He was deserving. He ran up against somebody better everywhere. And you you kind of thought that was his shot. I mean, he wasn't... He was kind of old even then. I mean, he's 42 now, so in 2014, he was, you know, over 35, bare minimum. Uh, it just didn't really seem like it was going to happen. He fought, I mean, he immediately after that fight loses to Phil Davis. And that was a time when Phil Davis was still kind of thought as a guy who could maybe contend for the belt. Never came about for a variety of reasons. But at that point, you just kind of go, okay. You know, he had his shot. He earned it. Sucks that he came up at the time when John Jones was champion because nobody got past that guy. And you can spare me all of you truthers out there about uh, Tiago Santos or Dominic Ray, as you people disgust me. But he stuck it out. He he kept fighting and he kept figuring out what was working for him and what wasn't. He beats Ovin St. Preux, beats Patrick Cummins, beats Rashad Evans. Okay, beating Rashad Evans in 2016 was not much. Then he gets flatlined by Anthony Johnson and like, 13 seconds. That was bad. I mean, (sighs) beats Jared Cannonier. Then he gets, oh, God, that Gustafson fight, man. In 2017, if you haven't seen this fight, it is comically one-sided. Alexander Gustafson beats the crap out of Glover Teixeira for four rounds and then stops him 107 of the 5th it is barely a competitive fight i mean it was that was ugly that there's no other way to say that that was an ugly beating he took and at that point there's a lot of people probably me included going you know the guys closing in on he was would have been about 39 give or take he's got some of these gnarly losses you know uh, maybe he's, you know, this is kind of his ceiling. And they give him an up-and-coming guy in Misha Serkinov, and he stopped Serkinov, and he fights Corey Anderson. Corey Anderson beat... I mean, I don't want to say beat the crap out of him, but kind of beat the crap out of him. Anderson uh, worked him over in that fight, man. And to be perfectly honest, if those two had a rematch tomorrow... I might still think Corey Anderson wins. I mean, Glover is not quite the same guy he is now as he was then, but he's pretty close and Anderson's even better. Uh, So, but, and I mean, then he beats some guys that he should have, he should beat, you know, Carl Robertson, Iwan Kutelaba. Okay, neither of these guys are world beaters. Fights to a split decision with Nikita Krylov. I thought he lost. I scored that fight against him, but you know, Silva. He hands Anthony Smith an epic beating. Uh, beats his fight with Thiago Santos. You know, he shows off a ton of grit. You know, he got he got hurt in that fight too, man, badly. Then just persevered and finished uh, Santos in the third. And here, somewhat improbably, in his 40th professional fight. At the age of 42, he beats the UFC light heavyweight champion clean. Like, there's no controversy about this at all. Wasn't even that close of a fight to be in terms of this fight wasn't all that close. You know, (laughs) that just doesn't happen all that often. And that is simultaneously, you know what? No, I'm going to let me save the cynicism. Or after the positivity um, I can't help but be a little bit you know cynical, so to speak, uh, because I'm me, but you know <sighs> watching him do that once I, some people have the reverse effect of how my brain processes things, some people just immediately happy, and then when you start thinking about it, the other factors come into play. I tend to do the reverse. I tend to see or consider a lot of other factors first. So things that everyone else is crowing about seem less impressive to me until, you know, a few hours later after I've full, after everything is fully processed and you go, you know what, that was pretty awesome. Uh, so putting aside... Again, I have to kind of set aside a bit of my cynicism. Uh you don't see this very often not someone who's already had his shot and a long time ago man 2014 ladies and gentlemen i hate to break this to all of us that was seven years ago how many people even have ufc title shots seven years apart i know it happens let me be clear i know it does happen I'm fairly certain Randy Couture has at least seven years between title shots at some point in his career. Maybe Dan Henderson? um, Because his UFC debut after uh, the collapse of Pride, he uh, fought Rampage to try and unify the light heavyweight titles. And he fought Anderson to try and unify the middleweight titles because he was both of those champions in Pride. Um, hmm. But to go from his fight with Anderson Silva, because that was the... uh, because that was the last one he had, to then his fight with Michael Bisbing. I know he was supposed to fight for the title at some other point in there, but it clearly never materialized. That might have been about that same stretch. I need to confirm this now. Hang on. Because this... I kind of feel the need to know this particular answer. So, the Anderson Silva fight, UFC 82, 2008. And then the Bisping fight, UFC 204, in 2016. So, it's March to a, a little over eight years for Dan Henderson to get two shots. And I don't think he had any UFC title fights between those two. Uh... No. He spent some time in... I mean, he left the UFC between those two points. He spent some time in strike force. So, I'm not pretending that the waters don't get a little bit muddy here and there, but... Uh, yeah, from his fight with Anderson to his fight with Bisbing was eight years. Over eight years. Uh, so, you... Again, it's not that you never see it, but... You don't see it often. And then to win. You know, to to win your second shot after seven years. After... Not only after getting dominated in your title opportunity, getting dominated by Phil Davis, getting sent to hell by Anthony Johnson, and then being a punching bag for 21 minutes against Alexander Gustafson... To still persevere. To just keep going. To keep trying to improve yourself. To day after day after day find a little something and keep going. And keep going. To eventually get to that mountaintop man. Like I said, you gotta be more dead inside than I am. If... If you can't even intellectually understand how impressive that is. And I bring this up a little bit, I suppose. I'm—I turned 36 not that long ago. I don't talk about myself all that often in this respect because it's largely immaterial to what we talk about here. But if you, again, as I mentioned, if you will indulge me a little bit of poetic license, and I am—I ah. don't want to say I'm unsatisfied with my life. Because that encompasses way too much. And there are things about my life that I love and that I am profoundly apparently enjoy that I am profoundly grateful for. And I don't mean to say that what follows is not meant to diminish that at all. But there's a lot about my life that I am not satisfied with, too. Uh, there's... I have not accomplished a lot of the things that I kind of had thought maybe I should have by this point in time. And this is only tangentially related to this. I mean, look, here's kind of... It's odd to talk about this on a fighting podcast for purely the following reason. And I, I hate to break this to a lot of people out there, but... If you want to engage in any kind of legitimate athletic endeavors on a competitive or professional level, uh, by the time you're 34, 35, you're done. It's, I hate to break it to you, but it's over. There, uh, you might immediately be screaming about so-and-so in such-and-such game. Well, hear me out for just a second, please. It's possible to extend the window of athletic uh, capability beyond that point with a a few caveats. One is, frankly, what endeavor you are going for. Uh, That's just going to be a reality. Certain sports are kinder to older people than others. Weird to say, you know... Someone who's 40 is old. Glover share is not old by any stretch of the imagination. If we're lucky, he's at about the midway point of his life. And hopefully not even that. I'm not wishing death on the man. But if we're talking about the, you know, limits of human capability, then aging and the inevitable decline in death is an, is a part of this. You also have to have started early. That's, this is another thing that people... <sighs> Some people misunderstand the point of this part, this bit here. I'm not at all going to tell someone not to, you know, play basketball or to pick up the to pick it up if you want to do it as a social activity, something to improve your overall health, again, make friends, scratch the competitive itch. If you're a slightly competitive person, like there's innumerable benefits to that. But. But. Any physical activity that you pick up by the time you're around 20, especially over 20, you don't have you have a fun hobby, and that's not nothing, and that's not to demean to demean it at all, but that's what you have. You don't have something that you can pursue. You know, you I mean, Deontay Wilder started boxing I think when he was 19, and was Largely considered... You might be saying this disproves the point, but hang on. When he started boxing at 19, he was considered too old to pick up the sport of boxing. And that might seem overly harsh. The reality, however, is he's probably at least 8 to 12 years behind his age group peers... In boxing development, if he picks it up at 19. Now Wilder had, uh, thankfully for him, in his case, he could punch like a horse. And the horses punch, like he he can punch with you know a near historic level of punching power. I don't know exactly where you want to rank his right hand in all time punching weapons in the heavyweight division. That that gets into very specific nuances that I don't necessarily consider myself qualified to discuss, but... Cut Deontay Wilder's punching power in half, and what is he in the sport of boxing? The answer is, at best, an enthusiast, more likely a washout. I mean, even today, if you look at his boxing skill, it is woefully behind... The majority of his peers, he gets by on punching power as much more than anything else, because most of the people he's boxing started boxing at the age. They started doing boxing training at the age of, you know, seven to 10. If you start something like that nine years later, you are just you're never going to catch up again very very few exceptions if you are a savant you can make up that gap unless you're a savant you're not going to and the point i was getting to is that talking about you know what what you feel you haven't accomplished in life as your life progresses, on a fighting, uh, on a podcast talking about fighting, where if you you start early and you end early, and I'm not saying you can't find an exception to that rule, you can find a few, but you can only find a few, you know. And, and this gets more true the lighter in weight you get. You know, if you fight at heavyweight, you age a little bit differently. But why was George Foreman winning the world heavyweight title in his 40s such a big deal? Because it doesn't happen. Because it just doesn't happen. And I kind of circle this back to why Glover's victory kind of struck a chord with me, I suppose. And I'm not someone who has accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, and the reality is, in some respects, it is too late. There's certain things that I just can't do anymore. That I and you just kind of have to make peace with that at some point, I suppose. But I'm, you know, I'm just, uh, I, hmm, how do I say this? Watching someone's dedication to perpetual incremental growth and seeing that payoff, because normally you don't see that payoff, right? Normally, we don't see the payoff to that kind of dedication. You just don't. Because it doesn't necessarily manifest itself publicly. And... When you get to see it do so like that, uh, again, even a cynical, sarcastic jackass like me can see you know, why that's special, why that matters, why people resonate with that, why Big Nog was crying, you know, hugging Glover to share as he came out of the cage. I, 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 I do get that. And, frankly, as someone who wasted a decade of his life, wasted, yeah, yeah, mostly wasted. Um, It's not, it is slightly heartening to be reminded that, you know, I mean this is something that's been going around for a while and it needs to be reiterated. Life doesn't end at 33. Your athletic potential peaks around then and if you and again, if you didn't pick something if you didn't pick something up you know 20 years earlier than that, if not more than that, yeah, you're again, you cannot you have a fun hobby, but you never have anything more than that for the most part. Uh Especially with some of the stuff that I do. And you know, when I do stuff like this, I don't I don't have a giant audience. And I'm aware of this and I've more or less made peace with that fact. You just kind of hope that if you keep trying to do your best and if you keep finding things that help improve the sh- help improve what you're doing that at some point it does manifest itself. So my poetic license being tempor- being you know revoked for the moment now um, I think the other thing I want to talk about relative to Glover's victory is you know again, positivity now must go away, however nice it feels two o five is a crap division uh, light heavyweight is the only division in the sport where a promotion other than the UFC, has arguably talent parity at the top, and more than that, arguably Bellator has the best light heavyweight fighter in the world. Now, I don't know if that's going to be Corey Anderson or Vadim Demkov, They're going to fight. But, and I mean this in all sincerity, if you put either of them in the cage with Glover Teixeira next, I, I might favor Glover over Nemkov slightly. I might. I would favor Corey Anderson over Glover Teixeira. Uh, part part of that's just stylistic, but yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about. Uh, and that's, uh, it's not a great. It's just not a great division. There's not really any two ways around it. Glover, to share his success, is equal parts testament to his dedication to his craft. And, and his craft is... You know, when people talk about, in somewhat overly flowery language, depending on who you're talking to, about the transformative benefits of the martial arts to you as a person. And again, there's people out there that... Overstate this to try and sell you uh, on going to their school. And if you have to, I mean, if you have to sell stuff to make things work, then, then you know, I'm not here judging you in totality. I am saying the transformative powers of martial arts are contingent upon you wanting to change, on you being open to the possibility. But if you wanted to sell someone on what it can mean to dedicate your life to some of the principles espoused by good martial arts practices, you show them Glover Teixeira. You show them a man who perseveres through adversity, who dedicates himself to improvement, and... Who never takes a shortcut. No, That man's career has no shortcuts in it whatsoever. Anywhere along that line. You show me one place in that man's career where he did not have to earn what he got through nothing but blood, sweat, and tears. Every step of the way. Every single step of the way. And it's also an indictment on the state of light heavyweight. (laughs) And and there's no getting around that. I mean, uh, there, there, there just isn't. Look, Glover is, let's be realistic about this. Glover Teixeira is probably going to lose his first title fight. His first title defense. There, the talking point seem to be that Yuri Perhotchka is going to be his first title defense. I'm okay with that fight being made. I... I tend to think Yuri's probably the next in line. But, uh... That could go horribly for Glover Teixeira. I'm not saying he's physically incapable of winning that fight. Because I don't think that's true. But, you know, you rewatch what Yuri Prochocka does to Volkan Uzdemir and then what he did to Dominic Reyes. And I don't know, this is not me saying that Yuri Prochocka is going to reign atop the light heavyweight division for years to come. I, I don't know. But <laughs> there's a really good chance he does horrible things to Glover Teixeira. And the reality is, in a functional division, people in Glover's spot don't achieve the success that he has achieved because the division will uh, will cycle. And the UFC is somewhat... Uh, I hate to say artificially, because, because it's part of what they do. I think the UFC's stated or implied preferences about who they keep and who they cut... Very clearly laid the groundwork for someone like Glover Teixeira to have this career resurgence. Ditto, you know, and frankly, ditto Jan Blahovic. I don't, I'm not saying Jan couldn't have found success either way, but how much success does Jan Blahovic have if the UFC still has Ryan Bader and Phil Davis lurking around the top of that division? Look, could he beat those two guys? Yeah, yeah. He Yanblowish is a very good fighter. Would I favor him to beat either of them? Now, he might have already fought them, actually. Now that I think about it, let me double check Jan. Um, no, he didn't. He has not fought. He has not fought either of those guys. He's one and one with Corey Anderson, lost to Jimmy Manoa, Gustafson, Patrick Cummins. Oof. that was rough. That, uh, now, to be fair to the Patrick Cummins fight, I thought that should have been a draw. But either way, uh, then yeah, oh Tiago Santos knocked him out. That was rough. But yeah, he's the UFC pruned a selection of the guys at light heavyweight because they thought they were undesirable talent to have on the roster. Whether you think that was the right call or not, I, I'm not here to say what good. I'm not here to say right or wrong. I'm here to say that's what they did. And they haven't really replenished the shelves at light heavyweight. They tried with a few guys, and they didn't pan out for one reason or another. And there's just not been this influx of talent to light heavyweight. It's it's never materialized. I mean, you've got. The two guys who are kind of in this posi- in the position now, and one of them we'll get to in more detail later, is uh, Magomed Kalayev and you get Yuri Prokhorchik. But you know, for a long time, it might even still be true actually. Light heavyweight was the oldest division in terms of rankings. Like who you know, who was who was ranked, and who was you know the lowest, the oldest division in that particular respect. It was 205. I mean you got Alexander Rakich kind of on the come up and he's a good fighter, but he's fallen out of favor. You got Anthony Smith still hanging around. In a in a healthier division, Anthony Smith is not number four on your contender list. <laughs> Someone with his miles at his age has been ground back down. And for some reason, light heavyweight can't do it. Uh Yeah, it's <laughs> There's not a look, you might feel differently than I do about this, but I'm going to go through the top, the champion in top 15 here for light heavyweight. And I'm going to say there's not a lot here to be excited about. And that's my, that's my stance. You might disagree with me, but let me make the case here. Champion Glover Teixeira. And then I'm going to just default Jan to number, I'm going to default Jan to number two. And I'm just going to assume that Prochaska moves up to number one. So some, the rankings have not been updated since the event took place. That's kind of why I bring this up. So um, some of these are going to change a little bit. But I don't think we're going to see anything too drastic. Glover to share a champion. Yuri Prochaska 1. Jan Blahovich 2. These are my assumptions. Now I'm going to go with the rankings. 3 through 15. And I know at least one of these is going to change. Alexander Rakich, Anthony Smith, Tiago Santos, Dominic Reyes, Magomed Ankalaev, Volkan Uzdemir. Ankalaev and Uzdemir fought on this card. We'll get to them, I promise. Nikita Krylov. Has that man won a fight recently? Johnny Walker. Oof, his last fight. Paul Craig, Ryan Spann, Jimmy Crute, Jamal Hill, and Iwan Kutelaba. Now, I'm not saying that those are bad fighters. They're not bad fighters. And pretty much any one of them could beat me with one hand tied behind their back. Like, this is not... I'm not... I'll throw that out there as a disclaimer. But Tiago Santos... is still a shell of what he used to be after both of his knees were destroyed. Dominic Reyes can't seem to buy a win... Volkan Uzdemir just got beat by Ankulaev. Uh Johnny Walker at number 10 is wildly, wildly inconsistent. I mean, you've got Nikita Kry... I need to double-check Krylov. I want to make sure I'm not being unfair to the man here. So... I'm pretty sure... he has not done well lately. Yeah, he's um, he's uh, two and three since returning to the UFC. He's been submitted by Jan Blachowicz, lost to Glover Teixeira, lost to Magomed Ankalaev. He beat Johnny w- in between those. He beat Johnny Walker and Ovin St. Prue. That's your number ten guy. That's your number ten contender. A guy who hasn't had a winning streak in the UFC since 2016. (sighs) Uh, uh, Look, again, you might feel differently. You might enjoy this division. And I am not here to tell you you're wrong. I am here to tell you there's a reason I don't care about it. And I don't know when or if that will change. This might be just one of those divisions that I cared about at one point and never care about again. So, again, Yuri Prochock is probably up next. Uh, As far as Jan Blachowicz goes, he's not going to get an immediate rematch, nor should he. Um, There's talk about Rakic and Smith having a rematch. I am so uninterested in that rematch. Look, I get that I get that Anthony Smith is much like Glover. Smith is one of those guys who's just going to keep swinging the axe. And God bless him for it. He's overcome some incredible adversity. Uh, But, I mean, I don't know. Do you think a rematch with him and Glover goes any differently? Glover literally knocked his teeth out in their first fight. I mean, that was one of the worst beatings you'll ever see. Uh, Again, you had Uzdemir, who just lost. You got Ankalaev, who... Ankalaev might be the guy. You know, he... He might wind up being the guy. So, um, we'll talk about him in a second or two, but... It's just... It's not a terribly compelling division, and the ufc is not going out of its way this is one of the downsides of the ufc's model being so resilient and so insulated from from quality uh they are they are not required or even terribly incentivized to go out of their way to find the best light heavyweights in the world some of them are going to come, some of them aren't. I mean, there's the old line from boxing, you know, who's the next great American heavyweight boxer? I forget who said this, some boxing trainer, but, you know, he's playing defensive line for the Ravens. Uh, now, that's not quite, a, it's not quite as bad in boxing as it, as it used to be in that respect, but, you know, who are the best heavyweight boxers in the world? There's three of them at the top. They can save you some trouble. It's Tyson Fury, Alexander Usyk, and Anthony Joshua. You got two Brits and a Ukrainian. And they're kind of the cream of the crop. You know, Wilder is... I'm not here to revisit Deontay Wilder. But, you know, who's... Where are the great heavyweight boxers coming out of at the moment? They ain't coming out of the United States. People get paid... there's, There's a brighter, more financially secure future doing other athletic endeavors. There just are. And that is even more true of MMA. Box the uh, the top end payouts in boxing comically dwarf the top end payouts in MMA. Comically. Um okay, who was the boxer? I forget I forget which boxer it was recently, but one of his kids had started wrestling. And he kind of got asked by uh, by some uh, journalist, about, you know, so is your kid gonna potential? Will we see your son in the UFC someday? And he said, No, they don't pay enough. And he's not wrong. <laughs> uh, so the UFC point being, the UFC doesn't really attract a lot of a lot of top end heavier, larger fighters. And you find some, but you know, the UFC has insulated themselves in such a way they don't have to recruit. you know they don't need to find someone else who's good and has value uh, already as a fighter and go, please come to us. They'd rather throw thirty donks from the contender series up there and see if one of them might stick it out. that's more the that's more the business model now for them. so. And with that as your operation model, is it really any surprise that someone like Anthony Smith, who's tough and can fight and will hold down people, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, but you want Anthony Smith's spot, you're going to have to pry it from his cold, dead hands. And he's not going to give it to you and is it really any surprise that with the UFC's operational model, they can't really find people that are reliably going to force that issue? So, yeah, it, it just kind of is what it is in that respect. I don't know what Glover does next. Um, again, you've got Smith and Rakich. The problem is I don't think there's a whole lot of... I say there's not a whole lot of appetite he might wind up fighting the loser of that fight because i think the winner of smith and rakich would be the next title contender after forhatchka um maybe you could do the rematch between blahovic and santos uh, magomed Ankolaev is going to need a big fight you could may- maybe maybe blahovic and onkaliyev is next But, I mean, is there is there any appetite for a rematch between Blahovich and Dominic Reyes? I have no interest in that. I don't know about you. You might feel differently, but I don't know that there's a tremendous appetite for it, so. Magomed Onkolaev might be in Jan Blachowicz's immediate future. That's a scary thought. Now, anyway, that was your main event. Good on Glover Teixeira. Getting it done with the old man strength for an hour on that right, i gotta <laughs> i went for an hour on that now i've got to talk about a fight that i actually really enjoyed because again to sharon Blahovitch, it didn't do a whole lot again did the moment at the end strike a bit of an emotional chord sure but i wasn't terribly interested Pyotr yawn and cory sandhagen by contrast oh god this was so good I I do not think that I am the most even all that qualified to talk a whole lot about this fight. I need to rewatch it a few times to get a better handle on things. Um, this fight was awesome. Glover Teixeira and Jan Blahovic looked like MMA from 10 15 years ago. And you could show that that fight to fans from that time period. From you know the uh, even if you want to go like uh, you know 2010ish so, you know, yeah 10 12 years ago and that fight would have fit right in. You could not show fans from 10 to 12 years ago, Pyotr Jan and Corey Sandhagen, and have them. It would blow their minds. It would just absolutely blow their minds. This was one of the most thoroughly Modern MMA fights I've seen in a long time. These two guys did everything. Uh, Corey Sandhagen deserves... Sorry, for the result, Piotr Jan defeats Corey Sandhagen via unanimous decision. 49-46 across the board. Doing it live, I went 48-47. I thought I gave Sandhagen the fifth. I don't stand by that. Uh, Again, I need to rewatch this. Sandhagen deserves a tremendous amount of credit for taking this fight on short notice and for performing as ably as he did. Uh, these two did some of everything. A lot of movement from Sandhagen, which was expected. He has good body work, which he did a lot of early. Anytime these two hit the mat, they scrambled like madmen. Uh, we had dueling heel hooks for a brief moment at one point. Uh, The pace that these two fought at... Oh, my... Let me just... For the... Just so you all understand. uh, The ridiculousness that was these two gentlemen in this fight. Uh, Let me bring it up specifically. Um, If we go totals... Corey Sandhagen... Over five rounds, through 449 strikes. Whoever breaks these down for the for the website for the UFC stats said 145 of those were significant. Guys, I don't know how. I can't tell you this enough. If you try to throw 100 strikes a hundred strikes around, which is basically what he was doing. That's insane. What's slightly more surprising to me... And now, Jan was numerically... Jan was behind a bit numerically in this fight. um, But... Uh, fights are not judged purely on quantity. But it's not like Jan fought at some small pace either. Peter Jan threw 270... 280 total strikes, excuse me. 280 total strikes over a 25-minute fight is nothing to sneeze at in terms of your pace. I mean, if we go round by round, how did he do? That was, so 37... If we're going by Jan. 37, 65, 57, 67, and 44. Jan usually has a slower first round because, a bit like Max Holloway... He uses that first round to make a lot of reads, more so than to be uh, to pour on the offense. By the time we get then as the fight goes on, he just gets stronger. He makes his he's got his reads down, he figures out what works and what doesn't. He adjusts. Piotr Jan is one of the kings of a mid-fight adjustment. I mean, he excels at it. He finds something that is going to work. And we'll stick with it, even if it doesn't work initially. When he fought Jose Aldo, he struggled a little bit when they were both orthodox. Uh, Aldo was landing some pretty decent leg kicks on him. I'm sure those didn't feel good. Jose Aldo kicks very, very hard. And he struggled a little bit with Aldo's jab. So he went southpaw. Suddenly, the the leg kick turned into a body kick, which also sucks, but is easier to deal with. And the hand fighting gets easier, so he didn't have to worry about Aldo's jab. And Jose Aldo didn't really have a counter adjustment for that. He just wound up being behind the eight ball over and over and over again. So, Jan having a slower first round and then picking things up. I mentioned this like Max Holloway, man. Max is like water. If you're, if you're not a bathtub, <laughs> that water's leaking. It finds somewhere and it leaks. And it drips, and it drips, and it wears away, and it wears away, and it erodes, and erodes, and erodes, and suddenly instead of a drip, you're dealing with a waterfall. Yawn is very similar; they go about their games very, very differently. Needs to be stressed. But macro, you know, like kind of macro perspective, Yawn's the same way. He gets a read on you, and he finds a couple of things that work, and they keep working, and they keep working, and they keep working. And they keep working. And it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and suddenly you don't you're you're not just in over your head, you're flattened by a steam trip like there's no good way to deal with that uh and so yeah, a little bit of that I mean just loosely since I'm talking about the numbers very briefly, if we're talking Corey Sandhagen and his pace. Corey Sandhagen's total strikes thrown round-over-round go as follows. 87, 113, 87, 84, and 78. I'm going to stress this again. That's nuts. These two fought at a crazy clip. Uh, Sandhagen got the first round. A lot of movement. Good jabs, bodywork, the ang- Oh, God, the way these two would fight in the pocket, the angles they'd hit after exchanges, how they'd adapt to each other like that way, it was, ooh. was, sh- like, chef's kiss. It was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, the, the footwork on display from both gentlemen should be studied. And I don't mean that lightly. Study what these two guys did here. Your game will be better for it. But, as Sandhagen... As Jan got a read on Sandhagen, he started going to the body more. Sandhagen switches a lot. Both men do. Both men can fight out of either stance. Any time Sandhagen went open stance against Jan, Jan would almost immediately throw a body kick at him. He was trying to punish him right away. Uh... The times that Sandhagen got in trouble a little bit largely were related to him trying to exit an exchange. If he didn't pivot, he'd get hit. And Jan started getting a better feel about timing Sandhagen so that Sandhagen would be either moving backwards or feel he had to move backwards so Jan could hit him. I mean, to say nothing of how he was able to start timing his jab as the fight went on and just uh, lancing it straight in Beautiful stuff. I mentioned some of the scrambles these two guys were involved in. Because Jan is such a violent fighter, people forget how good a wrestler and a grappler he is. Um, This was an amazing, amazing fight. This might be my fight of the year. Uh, It's certainly going on the short list. This This was great. Phil full of high pace technical adjustments from both men the the bleeding edge of what modern mixed martial arts looks like is what these two guys were doing. so uh, major major kudos to both guys for this this was this was great. I, I don't have I run out of you know, superlatives. This was phenomenal. An absolutely phenomenal fight. Um, there's a bit of a question about what next. They're Mostly due to... Um, Aljamain Sterling's recovery timetable and ditto TJ Dillashaw, who's recovering from knee injury. Um, I don't really care who Jan fights next. I... I think he I'm not saying that Aljamain Sterling couldn't switch a few things and maybe find more success in a rematch. I don't find it likely. Um, I mean look, rewatch the first fight between Jan and Sterling. Is there any doubt who's winning that fight? And it's Jan's own stupid fault for fouling like he did, not defending him. Not criticizing Aljamain Sterling, who came up and fought with everything he had. But on that night, who's the better fighter? Piotr Jan, and it's not especially close, especially the longer that fight goes. Uh, I think Jan's the best bantamweight in the world. not saying he can't lose. I'm not saying that there's not somebody coming up who might be able to beat him. Not even saying that Aljermaine Sterling couldn't find a different avenue uh, for victory. I find it unlikely. I think a fight between Jan and TJ Dillashaw would be interesting. uh, Just because of how Dillashaw fights. um, With a lot of his kind of shifting punches. His willingness to just try to grind you out with wrestling if necessary. But who do I favor? At this point, between Dillashaw and Yan, I favor Piotr Yan. Um, you know, the, the Bellator bantamweight champion is Anthony Pettis, and I'm not trying to you know dump on the guy. Any doubt who you'd pick if Anthony Pettis and Piotr Jan fought? Uh, Kyoji Horiguchi is about to. I think Horiguchi and Pettis are gonna fight. Horiguchi and Yan would be a heck of a fight. That's a pretty serious style clash. I'd still fa- I'd still favor Yan to be honest, but dang, now that I've mentioned that, I kind of want to see it, and it's sad that I won't get to. <laughs> uh, I I think Yan's the best bantamweight. I look, somebody's gonna beat him, but at the moment, another thing related to this, his only two losses ever are related to the fact that he's kind of a dirty fighter. He got a point deducted from his fight with Magomed Magomedov in, um, I think it was ACB at the time, which is now, I believe, ACA. And that cost him the decision in that in that title fight. He rebounded and beat him cleanly the second time. And here, he lost, in the Sterling fight, he lost via DQ because he kneed Aljamain Sterling in the head illegally. But think about that for just a second. His only losses are related to the fact that are his own fault. Literally his own fault. Uh, I said, somebody's going to beat him at some point. But I don't know who and I don't know when. Uh, I would love to see a rematch between these two. Not immediately. Let me stress that. Not immediately. Give it a year. You know, give, give it a year to 18 months, and if they're both still winning, that's kind of when I'd like to see this fight. I, I don't need it right away. Let Sandhagen develop some new tools, fix a few things, and then let me see this again in, in a year or so. Uh, and I think it'll be even better. So, Amazing fight. If you didn't see it, look it up. This was great. Uh, next up, Islam Makashev defeats Dan Hooker via Kamora at 225 of the first round. I don't think Islam got hit. Double check that. I'm. Um, Hooker is credited with landing two of three significant strikes. They went 13 of 14 total. Sorry, no, that, sorry, my apologies. That was Makashev. Hooker is credited with 4 of 13 significant strikes. 18 of 28 total. Some of those... 19 of 28. Some of those 19 of 28 total were those like small stuff that you throw on the ground that's not a significant strike. Um... <sighs> Islam Makashev is one of the least hit, not the least, one of the least hit fighters in the UFC. He takes... Like, he absorbs... He absorbs, uh, according to the career statistics here, his significant strikes absorbed per minute is .79. That man gets hit less than one time... Every 60 seconds. That's nuts. Especially at lightweight. Especially against some of the guys that he's fought. You know, Drew Dober knows how to put his knuckles on your chin. And... (laughs) What was it in that fight? Let me briefly look that up. Dober was... Ah, That's the wrong fight. In that fight. Um, Dober was fourteen of twenty four total strikes over uh three rounds. He was submitted in the third. <laughs> ten of twenty significant strikes. I don't know you're only landing fifty percent. You landed ten significant strikes in uh eleven minutes in change. Yeah, like that's <laughs> That's an insane number. He just doesn't get hit. Uh, look, I give Dan Hooker tons of credit for doing this on short notice. The man's a savage. He just is. He's he's a gr- he's he's had some wars, man. He's had some genuinely brilliant fights. But if Islam Makashev is doing this, it's uh, it's time he should maybe be fighting for the belt now. You can't quite—you can't declare that just yet for a couple of reasons. One, we've got a fight this coming week between Justin Gaethje and Michael Chandler, and both of them have had title shots. Gaethje's a former interim champion and then failed to beat Habib. Chandler fought for the vacant belt, was stopped by Charles Oliveira. But let's not pretend that if... Look, if they've got... If that fight's a war, it probably will be. It might end very quickly, too. Just throwing that out there. But one of them could get back into the title picture. We've got Poirier and Oliveira coming up. And let's not forget, if that fight has weirdness, if that's a great fight that has a controversial decision, they might do an immediate rematch. So I... I'm not sitting here declaring definitively that Makashev will get the next shot or even necessarily that he should. There's a few other variables that need to be shaken out. But is there anyone who would complain if he did? I mean again, some other fighters, yeah, they'd rather get the shot than not, but I mean, as fans, but you. If let's assume hypothetically Dustin Poirier beats Charles Oliveira. Just pause it. Either way, whatever. Assuming Poirier and Oliveira ends without controversy, there's no dubious stoppage, there's no uh, crappy scoring, there's n- you know no no contest. What if we get a clear winner? If the UFC comes out and says after that fight Islam Makashev is next, anybody gonna complain? I'm not. I'm very much not going to complain about that. Like, (laughs) he's doing this to, the big thing coming into this fight, and I think it's a reasonable complaint, well, not a complaint, but a a reasonable thing to observe, you know, Makachev's got a good winning streak coming into this fight. I think it was eight fights long. And winning eight fights in a row in the UFC is a heck of a feat in any division, much less lightweight. But who was the best name on his resume? And there was an open question about that. Ain't no question now. You threw him in there with a top 10 guy. Uh, I think Hooker was number 6 as a contender coming into this. Double check that, actually. Yeah, he was 6. You put him in there with the number 6 guy in the contendership queue. And he tapped him out without really taking a serious strike in less than a round. I mean, what is there to say? Like there's there's not a lot to say there. Uh I don't know if he's going to be champion or not. Look, him and Charles Oliveira, hypothetically, um that's a heck of a fight, man. Olivera can strike. He's technically pretty solid. He's got power. He can kick. He can punch. If Olivera gets on top of you grappling, you're in real trouble. If he gets your back, you're pretty much done. Uh, that man can grapple. Uh, I don't know if he doesn't have something up his sleeve that'll uh, beat us Makashev. He might. If he fights Dustin Poirier, is Makashev going to be able to commit to the same pace and specific labor-intensive strategy against Poirier that Khabib was able to use? Uh, I mean, look, the comparisons between Makashev and Khabib get made for several obvious reasons, but they're not identical fighters. Makashev is... he is much more about control than Khabib was much more. Khabib would take half-control positions, just a little bit of control, and then fight to keep it while punching you in the head until you made a bigger mistake. Makashev's a bit more control-oriented. He's a bit more passing-focused. And this is obviously not saying that that's wrong. He's a very successful fighter and might be the next champion, or certainly might be a champion sooner rather than later. It's just an observation that it wouldn't shock me tremendously if Dustin Poirier's commitment to fence wrestling and wall walking was more of a problem for the style that Makashev uses uh than it was for Khabib. Khabib feasts on would feast on people who fought like Dustin Poirier fights. Like it, That stylistically, from a, like a pure meta, from a grand strategy standpoint, what Khabib did demolished people who fight like Dustin Poirier and fight like, not just Poirier, I'm using him in this case specifically, but Poirier, anybody who fights like that, who makes those kinds of decisions, he, he demolishes them. And largely you're beaten before the fight even starts because of all the habits and patterns that you've built. What you think is the correct thing to do is suddenly not. Makashev doesn't quite do that, do what Khabib does in that respect. So maybe Dustin Poirier is able to anti-grapple a little bit better and drag him into a war. You know, Dustin Poirier can punch. Uh, And he's tricky about some of his setups. And Dustin Poirier is happy to march into hell with you you, there is i said this before about him there is not a dark corner of hell that that man is not familiar with and will not go into i don't care who you are i don't care if you're connor i don't care if you're justin gagey i don't care if you're khabib i don't care if you're charles Oliveira. i don't care if you're michael chandler i don't care if you're islam akashiev you want to go into hell with uh, with Dustin Poirier, he will go there with you with a smile on his face. And maybe he forces Mikashev into that kind of fight, and maybe Mikashev can't hang in that kind of a fight. But would, would Mikashev beating either of those guys shock you? Wouldn't shock me, not one iota. Not one iota. So he's he if he is not do a title shot, if he doesn't get the next title shot. Um uh, and Benil Daryush. Benil Daryush currently sitting at number three in the contender line. Again, we've got Chandler and Gagey coming up and that's gonna be great. But you've got but uh Makashev and Daryush, if you can't if Makashev is not the next challenger, for whatever reason Makashev and Daryush should crown should be a number one contenders fight. Uh, for whatever my take on that is worth. Um, you know, for Dan Hooker, sucks. Hopefully he I don't think he's injured. Uh, coming out of this, I mean his shoulder might be jacked up a little bit, but he he's still a talented guy. You know I don't think he needs to jump right back into the fray either. You know if he needs to. That guy's been through some wars, man. His fight with Poirier was a war. His fight with Paul Felder was a war. Uh, yeah, Dan Hooker, man, that's another guy that'll go into hell with you. And, and with a smile on his face, too, more often than not. Uh, I wouldn't object to him taking, you know... I mean, the man fought in just in September. You know a uh I so I wouldn't object to him taking a few months to kind of retool, reset, rest himself up, but he's still a very viable talent in the division. You know Dan Hooker's still not an easy out for any I mean even this, you know as easy as he kind of made this look. You know, was this an Is Dan Hooker an easy out for anybody? Not really. But that was heck of a performance from Makachev. Best win of his career by far. If he's not fighting for the belt next, he should be in a clear-cut number one contenders fight. And he might be coming for that belt. And not just coming for it, he might take that belt back to Russia. So, yeah, good on for him. Uh, we had a crappy heavyweight fight between Alexander Volkov and Marcin Tabora. Uh, Volkov wins by unanimous decision. I have nothing to say about this fight. This fight sucked. Welterweight, however... Kamzat Shemaev returned to action after some pretty serious bouts with COVID. Took on the stiffest test of his career when he fought uh, number 11 at the time, Li Leong. And, uh, hate to break it to you guys, but this was not close. Kamzat Shemaev ran him over. Remember when I said that, uh, Islam Akashev gets hit less than one time every minute? He gets hit, you know, again, like 0.7 times per minute. Kamzat Shemaev gets it less than that. In four UFC fights, Kamzat Shemaev has absorbed two strikes. Only one of them was significant. Two. I... <laughs> I have never seen that. Ever. I don't know anyone at any point in their career who has done that. Li Liung only threw one strike. Shemaev came out right away, threw a right hand, double-legged him, got him on the ground, and it was... And he mauled him from there. He passed his guard, he mauled him, he got to the ride position, mauled him, got his back, Lee had some pretty good... Renee naked choke defense. He was doing some things to stay alive. Shemaya adjusted, got the choke, put him to sleep, done. I don't know. Look, you want to argue that other people have had more impressive, a more impressive four, first four fights in the UFC. If we're talking name value, I can see it. Like, Look... Uh, Shamayev's first couple of op- opponents in the UFC were... There were no-hopers. Right? You had uh, John Phillips, who I don't even think is with the UFC anymore. Yeah, he got cut last year. I mean, John Phillips' UFC career career record was 1-5. and five. Right? Like... <laughs> You run that guy over like a truck, you're supposed to. He beat Reese McKee in his second fight. Uh, I don't think Reese McKee is with the UFC either at this point. Then he had a pretty... Look, what he did to Gerald Murchardt was not to be trifled with. merchart's a... Murchardt's a veteran, right? He's... Uh, so, one-punching that guy in 17 seconds, you pay attention to that. Like, okay... That's notable. Uh, at the same time, you know, how much does a 17-second win tell you, tell us about you as a fighter? Not much. Means you got power. Mearshart, you know, he doesn't have the best chin in the world, but he's he's not Feitan Felipe. You know, he's he can take a punch. You bulldoze Leung Li Leong like this. Wow. Look, Lijing Leong is not unbeatable, right? Not by any stretch of the imagination. But he was the number 11 guy in the UFC, in the contender queue. And he's got some pretty impressive wins. Look, that guy beat... He stopped both Elizu Zaleski Dos Santos and Santiago Ponzinibbio. Those are two guys that a lot of us, me included, thought maybe we're getting screwed over in the title picture should have been fighting you know somebody either to get a title shot or whatnot they had long winning streaks li leong beat him you know, he's got losses in the ufc too I'm not going to pretend otherwise but that's a guy with some notable wins and a couple of long winning streaks he had a four-fight winning streak at one point. He had a three-fight winning I mean, coming into this fight, he was 4-1 and one in his last five, only dropping a decision to Neil Magny. Jing Leong is a proven UFC-caliber fighter. And Shemaev beat him like... I don't even necessarily know I have a good uh, metaphor here. Like, he beat him the way, if you wanted to make a point to the new guy in your jujitsu class, like, okay, you're the new guy, I've been here longer. If you just wanted to, you know, bulldoze that poor guy on the ground, like, that's what this was. He Shemayev beat this guy like he didn't know what he was doing. i don't know who's next for this guy for shemaev i don't a lot of people are going to be ducking him uh i'm not going to say the man's you know a future champion i don't necessarily have the correct eye for talent to do that and there's a lot we still don't know about him look the man he's got power he can wrestle uh he's got good ground and pound like there's a lot to like about him there's There's things we still need to know. He hasn't fought a strong wrestler yet. And I think that... That's something I need to see him do. Because the top end of welterweight in particular... You got guys who can wrestle their butts off. But... uh, You know, could he fight maybe the loser of Leon Edwards and Jorge Masvidal? Maybe the winner? If Edwards wins, she, let me let me step let me roll that back just a bit. If Leon Edwards beats Jorge Masvidal, he there is no reason not he should not be getting a title shot at that point. None. Well, there's no good reason at any rate. But if Edwards loses, yeah, we get Edwards and Shemaev. and I think that's a rough fight for Leon Edwards to be candid. The way Edwards likes to fight against the way Shemaev likes to fight. that That's going to be real rough. It's gonna, that's going to be really rough. Oh, excuse me. That's going to be really rough for one of them. Because they fight very, very differently. And if one of them can make the other fight the way they don't want to fight, that's going to go bad. If Shemaev has to fight Leon Edwards' is more controlled... Uh, round-managing and round-winning style. That will go badly for him. I don't think he can do that. But is it more likely that Shemaev can force Edwards to fight his relentless action, I'm-gonna-kill-you kind of fight? It's usually easier for the guy who wants a higher pace to force a higher pace. Usually, not always. I I don't know who specifically is going to be next for that guy, but he's going to be fighting somebody ranked. Uh, he's going to be fighting somebody not just in the top ten. Uh, he's going to be fighting somebody whose name you know. And oof, I saw the jokes coming out that this was going to wind because Nate Diaz has said he's on his last fight for his current UFC deal, and he plans to fight it out. The UFC doesn't like people doing this, so they tend to punish them with terrible matchups. Usually that no one can see, but because Nate Diaz is so visible in general, uh, he'll get that. They won't be able to do that. But I saw the jokes coming out that, uh, okay, so Shemayev is going to be Nate Diaz's last fight in his contract. Um, One, I hate that that could be real. I did, that's a direction things could go and they very well could. I'm not gonna pretend that that's impossible simply because I'm not interested in it. Um because it might. But two boy that is that would go so badly for Nate Diaz so quickly. Oof, that would have been that, that would be ugly if it gets made. Um You got Vicente Luque right now sitting at four. Edwards and Masvidal are going to fight. Steven Thompson's at five. Steven Thompson probably needs a fight. I mean, like I said, I'm not necessarily here to tell you that Kamzat Shumayev is going to be the next welterweight champion. But I do feel pretty confident saying he's probably going to, he's going to fight for that belt at some point. And I'm not going to be shocked if he wins it, you know. He's gonna lose at some point. Everyone does, unless you're Khabib. And there's still things we need to see. We need to see him overcome adversity. You know, maybe need to see him fight a strong wrestler. See how his chin holds up if he actually gets into a fight. You know. But somebody's got to be able to do those things to him as well. You know. So if you get hit, le- if you get hit less. If, you, if your significant strikes absorbed per minute currently sit at .1, so you absorb one-tenth of a significant strike per minute, if you were to average it out, does it matter if you don't have a chin? Like, if you can force people, if you can force that kind of a fight onto people, if you, if your chin isn't great, I mean, that's not a great thing, but if you don't get hit, does it really matter? <laughs> I mean, it matters when you get hit inevitably because someone's going to at some point, but. And uh, Shemaev. Oof. He's he's coming for the top of that division. And. That it's going to make for some interesting fights. And frankly, at this point, i I like his chances against a lot of that division based on what we know at the moment. Uh, that, but, <sighs> you know, when he was, again, when he was blowing out no hopers, okay, anybody can crush cans. You one punch Gerald Merchart, and then you do this to Li Jing Leong. Uh You better, you better start paying attention to this guy. He's, he's not, he's not just a hype job. He's here and he's here for real. Right, and kicking off the main card, Magomed on Kalaev defeated Vulcan and Uzdemir for unanimous decision. 230 27s 129-28. Not a great fight. Um, but Magomed on Kalaev is no one to trifle with. 15-1 and one as a professional. Um, take a quick look at some of his... I mean, his stats for this round, he threw 118 total strikes. These two fought at a pretty decent clip for, for guys of their size. He's got good power. Um, he only absorbs two strikes per minute on average. Um, his striking accuracy is 55%. That's good. If you're hitting half of what you're throwing, that's really good. Uh, most guys don't. He's got good takedowns, not the best but good. His grout and pound is really good. Like this is I'm not calling for Uncle Iev to get the next title shot again. There's a few other complicating factors there, namely Yuri Perhotka, but he's coming for that belt. Uh this is a guy you if you're a fi- if you're at light heavyweight take this guy seriously because He's, uh... He's coming for you. Like, this is... This is no one to trifle with. He might be... Plenty of people who are better at assessing talent than I am... Have said, this guy could be a champion. Pay attention to this guy. Uh... Good enough fight here. He had some good takedowns when he needed them. Uh, just outstruck Uzdemir on the feet. Uh... You know, solid win for Uncle Laev. It's amazing. The guy debuted in the UFC undefeated, beat the crap out of Paul Craig before getting caught in a Hail Mary triangle choke, and uh, winds up losing at 4.59 of the third. If he holds on for that last second, he wins that fight walking away. It's a shame it took him this long to regain some hype. You know, what did he do right after that fight? He head kicked Marcin Procneo, he beat the crap out of Clidson Abreu. He front kicked Dalcy Lungi and Bula in the face and knocked him out. He wasted 2020 fighting Iwan Kutalaba twice and beating the crap out of him both times. Then he beat Nikita Krylov earlier this year pretty cleanly. Now he beats Volkan Uzdemir. Like, that guy, again, next title challenger? No. You've, you've got factors here messing things up. But, uh, him and Blahovich, maybe. You know, uh, he's whoever he fights next. Is uh, should put him into title contention if he if he wins. And I'd like to also, if I may make a humble request to the unpaid intern listening to this show over at the UFC, put him in a five round fight. Yeah, you got a billion of these crappy fight nights. I want to see this guy over five rounds. I might regret that if the fight sucks, but. I would like to see him fight over five rounds before his ti- before a potential title fight, my opinion. Uh, yeah, so that was your main card. Again, okay, you had a dud at heavyweight, but everything else was good. Everything else was good to great. As for the prelims, I'm going to go through these quickly. Amanda Hibas defeated Vienna Jandiroba of unanimous decision, 29-28 on all three scorecards. Roba had the first, and then after that, uh, Hibas just... Found a decent bit on her timing. Started landing straight punches. He best wins two and three. No controversy here. Zubaira Tuhugov defeats Ricardo Hamos via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. No issues with this. Uh, again, decent little fight here. Um, very few takedowns. Tuhugov fought most of this on the feet, and these two guys jabbed each other's faces off, man. Um, they really did. That was, uh... Both of them had busted up eyes. Tehugov needed that one badly. Middleweight Albert Durayev defeated Roman Kopulov. Unanimous decision. 30-27, 29-27, and 29-27. Um... Wasn't there a point deduction in there? Where's there a point deduction? Um... No, Zaleski Dos Santos had the point deduction. What's with the. Um. Hmm. Uh. Oh, I. Wasn't there a ten-eight? Might have been that. I. That's throwing me off now. Uh. Where did they arrive at that? Hang on, I gotta look this up. Uh, right, 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 right. Um, okay, sorry, major brain fade. Uh, Derive had a 10-8 second, and then Kopilov won the third. Uh, by most reasonable scorecards, the judge who didn't give Derive a 10-8 second round, fire that guy. Who was that actually? And I can find who that was. Who were the scores? Um, this would be Vito... Paolillo. I'm butchering that gentleman's last name. I apologize for that, but fire that guy. Um, no reason not to give him a 10-8 second round in that. None whatsoever. Shame on you. Um, Zaleski de Santos defeated Benoit Saint Denis. The unanimous decision... Oh, God, this fight. 29-26, 29-26, 29-26. Okay. The referee for this fight. I'm going to trust Grabaka Hitman Kaposa on Twitter who said that he had seen this gentleman referee on the Russian, more regional scene. Uh, Your M1s and your ACAs, those kind of promotions. Apparently, this ref likes blood. This fight, there's an argument for a 10-7 in the second round. It should have been stopped. A couple of different places. This fight in the second round, it should have been stopped. There was no reason for Benoit Saint-Denis to take this much abuse. The 29-26 has come because there was a point deduction to Dos Santos in the third round. I don't even obj- I'm not even objecting to the point deduction. Right, It was a groin strike. And look, could he have just given him a warning? Sure, but I also tend to think fouls in MMA need to be treated more seriously than they are. And penalizing them quicker, depending on the specific circumstances, might not be the worst thing in the world. I don't know. But this was a shameful job of officiating. Absolutely shameful. There were two different points during about a two-minute stretch in that second round when I I didn't know what the... like The ref must have been waiting for him to fall over or for the, the EKG to register a flat line. I don't know. This was insane. I mean, the commentary team was telling them to stop the fight. I don't know... I mean, this ref was supposed to referee the Ankulayev and Uzdemir fight. His performance here was so bad as the referee... That they pulled him. And frankly, they were right to do so. You can't watch that second round and tell me it's okay to let that fight continue. Not if you're a competent referee. And shame on Santini's corner. You watched your guy take that abuse and then send him back out for a third round? Why? Why would you do this? That man did not need to take that much abuse, and for what? Let me ask you again, for what? So he could go. So he could go to the judges' scorecards. He lost. He had no hope of winning that fight. All you did was give that man five more minutes of getting punched in the head. For what? Some bullshit notion about uh, honor we we, we va- this is a thing I, I hate this about MMA culture and this is more becoming this is becoming more and more about coaches and trainers than it is about fans fans I think have kind of come around on this a little bit stop pretending that taking a beating has merit It doesn't. There were five minutes of physical abuse that this gentleman took for no reason at all. Absolutely none. It is your job, coroners, to protect the fighter. You did not protect your man in this case. You failed miserably by any kind of ethical or moral standard. Any of them. Unless you're trying to make the argument that our ethics are fights to the death. And they're not. They're very deliberately not. Because if you have to fight someone to the death, my advice is blow their house up a week before the fight. We need to get away from this ridiculous notion that taking head trauma is valorous is gl- is glamorous glorified is a good thing it isn't some of this is just because mma is still young you know i, I heard this point made about why uh, boxing corners being more willing to throw in, in the towel than mma corners and i think there's some truth to this one uh, you know what uh, I-, I like the way this was put i think it was luke thomas i heard say this But I think it's true. Boxing has a couple of things that MMA doesn't. One of the things boxing has is old men. You know the nice thing about old men? They don't care. They don't care one iota about public pressure, about what you think, about what the media thinks. They see their guy taking a beating. They've prob Most boxing trainers, especially old boxing trainers have either seen a fighter die, know someone who watched a fighter die firsthand, or they've had one of their fighters die. Pardon my language, these guys don't give a fuck. They don't care one iota about their bo- about the boxer being pissed, about the media questioning them, or about the fans going, let them go out on their shield. Uh-uh. These are men who have seen the real cost of this, who have, or you get fired, or maybe not even death. You know, what does, what does the guy who trained Riddick Bow think about some of the fights he let Riddick Beau fight? Some of the times he could have saved that man. Have you seen Riddick Bow lately? Heard him try to speak? It ain't pretty. You know I mean? James Tony's in kind of a bad way, especially like the way he speaks. And that man took... James Tony probably took less physical abuse in half of his entire boxing career than Saint-Denis took in that second round. And he wound up, you know, talking like he does. The long-term cost of this is not something that I think MMA has had to reckon with yet. So there's a lot of stupid trainers. So, uh, not stupid. There's some very good trainers who the thought never crosses their mind to throw in the towel. And that's going to change. That's going to change in 10 years when Anthony Smith, uh, I use him just as a random example, can't remember his daughter's name. Like, we, as uh, as a group of people we're we're still a little bit lucky that some of the heroes from 15 years ago in fighting in MMA mostly still are presentable human beings you know and even then in some cases it's iffy this is not me taking some kind of a you know, I'm I'm not taking a cheap shot at anybody here but there's but not all of them you know, you, you've seen Gary Goodridge lately? Huh? That's reality. And that is reality that a fighter's corner is supposed to try and avoid. And apparently, col- the collective group that has to make these decisions is not going to change this ridiculous, antiquated, backwards notion that taking a beating is somehow a worthwhile endeavor until you have to see and live with the reality of not doing your job in the face. And it's, it shouldn't. We should be able to look at other sports that had to learn this lesson the hard way, that had to pay the human cost, and still pay the human cost, and will pay the human cost for as long as the sport exists, because that's the nature of the sport. For some reason, we've got to learn the hard way too, I guess. Disgusting cornering, disgusting refereeing. Light heavyweight. uh, Mikhail Olyksajic defeated Shamil Gamzatov via TKO 331 to the 1st. Uh, Gamzatov had, uh... He still might recover from this. But... Oleg Sejic has good body punching. And I think his biggest attribute when he's able to use it properly is he pushes a pace, man. That dude is in your face. Start to finish. And if you're not... If you don't have tools to mitigate that... You're gonna be in for a rough night, as Gamzatov was here. A lovely finishing blow from Oleg Sejic, Snuck an uppercut in right between the guard. Uh, of Gamzatov. Dropped him like a rock. Speaking of dropping like a rock, Lerone Murphy defeated Mach Amir Amir-Khani via knockout. Knee, 14 seconds into the second round. Um, Amir Khani gets a fairly quick double leg in the first. Spends the rest of the round on top controlling against the fence. Doesn't do a whole lot. Second round, Murphy comes out, shows the... Uh, Amir Khani fights Southpaw. He shows Southpaw to try and induce a double leg. A double leg takedown is a little bit easier when you're in the same stance. We have closed stance, so, op- so orthodox, orthodox, or Southpaw, Southpaw. If you're opposite stances, uh, if you're open, the single leg's a little bit easier because that lead leg is closer to your lead hand, so you can just kind of scoop it up. So he-, he shows Southpaw to kind of induce the double. Does a really nice sneaky switch with his feet on it as he throws a left. Then that puts his right leg in the back so it becomes his power knee, knees up the middle as uh, Amir Khani is dropping for his double leg, out cold. Uh, this might be a reference that not too many of you understand, but uh, there was a fighter never fought in the UFC by the name of Yoakam Hellboy Hansen who was great about timing knee strikes just like this. Very much reminded me of that. Good win for Murphy. Murphy's someone to pay attention to at featherweight. Uh, still might have some issues to iron out, but... Never lost. Uh, pay attention to that guy. Uh, middleweight Andre Petroski defeated Hu Yaoxang via arm triangle choke submission 446 to the third. Not a lot here. Hugh probably shouldn't be in the UFC. Uh, he came into the UFC 3-0, has gone 0-3 cents. I don't like calling for fighters jobs, I really don't. But... That should tell you something. I... I he came into the UFC too early. He just did, and that has done him no favors. Um, Petrosky eh? He's got a gas tank issue, especially striking. Um, oof. he just he just does. On the ground, you know, his takedowns are pretty good. He's more comfortable there. Uh, I think, unfortunately, he's a little bit. I don't mean this as an insult. He's very meat and potatoes, and if he can do those very, very well, that will take you very, very far. But at the moment, he seems he seems to be lacking some sophistication there. Uh, and look, if he's fighting, if he's if he was as much better on the ground than Hugh here as he was, maybe you don't need to bust out every little trick in the book. It's not necessary. But when you go back to the same. ...thing over and over and over again like he did here with the arm triangle. Eh, maybe a little diversity of offense. Uh, he's young in the sport. You know, I'm not trying to dump on the guy. Uh, we'll see what he does next. And then, kicking everything off... ...Tiger Bekov defeated ala Nascimento, Split decision, 29 28s Two for Ulanbekov, one for Nascimento. I was 29-28 Ulanbekov live... I don't object to 29-28 for either man. Um, very very competitive fight. Nascimento here with a good display of how to use your guard actively in Ulanbekov. Spent time on top, but a lot of it he didn't attack, and that's a problem. Uh, so 29-28 like for either man is perfectly defensible. Good little fight. Um, we were supposed to get a fight between Demir Ismagulov and Magomed Mustafayev. Didn't happen. Ismagulov weighed in at 163 and a half pounds for a lightweight fight. Um, it's missing by right around eight pounds. That's a problem. Now, Ismagulov has never missed weight in the UFC. He did once, very early in his career, back in 2015. Um, he's had several catch weights, none in the UFC, but he's had some catch weights along the way uh, earlier in his career. Uh, the one time he missed, again, back it was his sixth professional excuse me, his fifth professional fight, he weighed one fifty-six and a half. You only miss by half a pound for a non title fight. I mean, I'm I'm willing to, you know, again, be a little bit forgiving of that. Something had to have gone horribly wrong to miss weight by this much. Like, you don't miss by, you know, seven and a half, eight and a half pounds. Um Unless you're Paulo Costa, I guess, then you just negotiate for a fight twenty pounds heavier. Uh, but this is this doesn't really happen unless something has gone catastrophically wrong, usually injury or illness related. So I, whatever caused this, I hope it's not serious. Uh, I I'm a pretty big I've I'm a pretty big believer in Ishmagulov. I think he's uh, I think he's got a real bright future. But so, so hopefully this wasn't a serious thing, and if it if it wasn't a serious injury or illness issue that complicated things and you just screwed, you screw up your weight cut by that much, buddy, you got a real problem., uh, a real problem. So we'll have to wait and see what happens if any other news comes out again. Again. He weighed in that much and the bout was cancelled, which I'm in support of. Uh, I I hope whatever was wrong with him is not serious. And I'm just going to assume something was wrong. Because otherwise, at eight eight pounds, yeesh. Like, seriously. So, that was UFC 267. I would very much like to thank everyone who read my live coverage. I know there were a few of you over there hanging out. I deeply appreciate all of you. Everyone who read after the fact, uh, these things tend not to be Uh, my after-the-fact reports tend not to get as much traffic as the live coverage stuff but I do thank you Uh, for everyone who's read you you guys uh, it means a lot you have a lot of places you could go you choose my work and I I do profoundly thank you for it so uh, much much appreciated okay Well, with that out of the way... jeez, Two hours. Kind of what I figured, but still. This is why there's not going to be much of a news segment today, even if there was news. Next week, UFC 268. All right, another great card. So let's talk UFC 268. Main event for the welterweight title, a rematch between Kamaru Usman and Colby Covington. I... Look, full disclosure... A lot of people raved about their first fight. These two first fought uh, UFC 245. It was the last event of 2019. Usman retained his title via fifth round TKO. Since then, I'm going to talk about that fight in a minute, but before that, let's just go since then. Since that point, Kamar Usman has defended his title three times. A last-minute replacement fight against Jorge Masvidal, where he won a wide unanimous decision. He fought Gilbert Burns, had a scary moment in the first, and then went on to to badly hurt him in the second and stop him in the third. And a rematch with Jorge Masvidal, where he knocked him out cold in the second round. Uh, That's what Usman's done since these two last fought. Covington has fought once since then, and he defeated Tyron Woodley uh, via injury. He was winning that fight anyway. Uh, Woodley's... Woodley dislocated a rib in the fifth round. Uh, Posted the extra of it, you can see it it, it separated... Your your floating ribs in particular, guys, are not all bone. They're bone, and then there's cartilage where it connects from the rib to the sternum. There's There's a place where the bone and the cartilage connect and that separated uh for Tyron Woodley. At least I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Uh I, well, I I uh based again, based on what I heard other medical experts say about it, so uh feel free to consult people who know more than I do. I'm kind of just uh polemicizing this stuff. Um but that was in September of 2020, so Covington's been on the shelf for over a year. Um, I don't know that he's had too much injury stuff, related stuff. I think he just kind of waited out his title shot. Uh, so their, their previous fight, a lot of people were really high on. I wasn't. Maybe that's just me trying to be a contrarian. But it, it did not move me the way it moved other people. Just reality. Um... I also don't think there's too much about that that's going to be too informative about this fight for a variety of reasons. Um, couple of, re- I think there's a few. There's some macro stuff that I think will still be true, and I that is largely the following. I did kind of a deep dive on both gentlemen ahead of that fight, and I came to the following conclusion. And this is based on. Rewatching there. If you're interested, there are those. I think those are still available in podcast format. Um, my my deep dive on both Covington and Usman. So if you want to go listen to me more in depth there, where I cite some more specifics, uh, please feel free to do so. But there's a fundamental opposition here in how these two gentlemen like to fight, and it's not striker versus grappler, or anything like that. One of these guys likes controlled fights. One of them likes chaos. That's probably why his nickname is chaos, point of fact. If you rewatch their first fight, when Colby Covington has success is when the, the pace is high and things are unpredictable. The wilder and a little bit more chaotic things are, the more he's able to excel. That's what he likes to do. That's where he finds his most success. Usman, by direct contrast is all about control, and this is true of his this is true in his wrestling style and by the way this is all this is, reverse is true of colby this This fundamental desire that these two gentlemen both have permeates their fighting wherever the fight goes. If you want to wrestle with Colby Covington, who can wrestle his butt off, the, the same principle applies. He doesn't do a lot of ground and pound, believe it or not, for a guy who spends as much time wrestling as Colby does. Not very active with, his, with strikes uh, when he's in the ground, when he's grappling. If he's grappling, he's grappling. If he's striking, he's striking. It's a little bit of a habit of his. But if you're wrestling with him, it's constant. It's motion. It's him getting you against the fence. It's him switching off, ducking behind, hitting a mat return, riding up and down and up and down and hand fighting and you know from the back circles back around for a double leg, passes you fence walk. He rides like all the time. He likes it to be active. And he uses that to wear you down. He's worn down some very good fighters like that before he goes into the crazy pace that he pushes on the feet. I mean, I'm not here to knock Kamaru Usman's gas tank at all. But if you ask me who's got the better cardio of these two, it is Covington. That man's pace and, and his physical conditioning are might be the best at welterweight. Now, I don't say that lightly but you look at the pace that man pushes and tell me that there's not a compelling case to be made. Usman is kind of the opposite. Usman thrives on control. And this is true of his striking and his wrestling. If you wrestle with Kamaru Usman, he gets a half control position, he'll get Look at his fight with Tyron Woodley lot of that was in the clinch a lot of that was a theoretically 50 50 position they each had over under control one overhook one underhook who was winning in your ostensibly even position you are not even with Kamaru Usman and he knows it and he uses it if you if he wants to wrestle with you it's a lot of control he doesn't it's not that he doesn't pass he does but he's not He doesn't like scrambles not a whole lot he wants to control you he wants to be methodical he wants to hold you in half guard beat the crap out of your body until you decide you're gonna make a mistake then he advances then he controls you Then he beats you up then you have to try and explode up and maybe you can and maybe you can't but if you screw up he advances again and he's still crushing you and he's still hitting you and you can't do anything if it this is also true of his striking, as I mentioned. Gilbert Byrne, Where did Gilbert Burns catch him in their fight? Because he caught him. When it got a little bit wilder earlier in the fight. Wasn't quite happy with that. Usman doesn't really like that. If you watch the first fight between these two, and again, there's only a little bit as far as technique goes that I think is all that informative for a potential rematch here, and I'll get into why in a second. When the pace, they fought at a good pace all the way through. I I don't mean to pretend that they took long breaks. But watch that fight again. When things get wilder, they favor Covington. When things are more methodical, even even at a decent clip, even at the striking, when things are a little bit more paced and predictable, when they're a little bit more managed, a little bit more controlled, they favor Usman. And that's ultimately what leads to Covington's undoing. That and Covington's really bad habit of keeping his mouth open. Got his jaw broken for a reason. And no, that's not a shot at him talking and trying to be a personality. He literally got punched with his mouth open. Don't do that. Keep your mouth shut. You're supposed... To <laughs> There's a reason, so you don't get your jaw broken. But that... That's kind of the fundamental difference between these two guys. And it's... It's a fascinating dynamic. One guy wants chaos. One guy wants control. Those are the conditions they need to survive. What happened to Gilbert Burns when that fight got more managed? You know, when it got a little bit wild, especially a little bit early before Usman had much of a feel for things, he caught him. And Burns has some pretty heavy hands. Usman, to his eternal credit, persevered. Managed things a little bit better. Started landing a jab from either, from both stances. He lanced that thing into Burns over and over and over again. And then clobbered him. The more managed this is, the more it favors Usman. The less managed it is, the more it favors Covington. That might seem like something simple. Well, then couldn't Colby force everything to be chaotic? Well... As demonstrated at this point by Kamaru Usman, you get sloppy with that man at your hazard. You have to do it... There's a way to force these things to be wild and unpredictable without being sloppy and reckless. And that's a hard line to walk. And against some fighters, it doesn't matter. You know, is it Easier to make Rafael dos Anjos fight Covington's style of fight. Yeah, it is. Not a knock on RDA at all. Who I think is sadly a forgotten great in the sport. But, I mean, Covington forced Robbie Lawler to fight his kind of fight. You know, that's that's not an easy thing. Lawler... Old Rob Lawler's no one to take lightly in that respect the the danger coming back your way if you get sloppy against Kamaru Usman. You know, Gilbert Burns is not a chump on the feet. Jorge Masvidal is certainly not a chump on the feet. And he knocked both of those gentlemen out cold. You You can make him... You have to... I think Covington has to try and make this a bit higher-paced, a little bit less unpredictable. That's just a hard line to walk when you're staring down the firepower that Usman brings. But I do think it's something he has to do because you're not going to out control Kamaru Usman. I just don't think that's possible right now. At this point, I also think that this is what, the primary reason I think the first fight is not terribly informative beyond like really broad strokes. Look at what Usman has done since, and I don't just mean that he's beaten people. He began associating, and has done some training with Trevor Whitman. And that has done wonders for his striking. If you look at him, it's not that, look, prior to knocking out Usman came into the UFC and beat everyone with his wrestling. He'd squash them, he'd control them, he'd decision them. Okay, In his UFC career, he, won, he finished his debut via triangle choke, won four decisions in a row, knocked out Sergio Moraes, won four more decisions in a row, including his title win, then engages in a five-round slugfest with Covington. This is not a guy... It's not that he didn't have power, but the delivery system wasn't quite there, his technique wasn't all that refined, and, well, you couldn't be... You couldn't be glib about his... about, you know, striking with the man. It also wasn't... was certainly maybe preferable to trying to wrestle the guy, for most people. Look at when he's done his last two fights. Look at what a bit of time and a bit of refinement with what Trevor Whitman does specifically has turned that man into. Kamaru Usman is a monster. And Colby Covington cannot try to do what he did last time. This fight will not go five rounds. Will not go into the fifth round. If he tries to engage in a prolonged striking battle with the version of Kamaru Usman that exists now, with his jab from both st- with his jab and his stance switching, and his ability to set up a power punch, that is just not a recipe for success. Especially in the especially if you're Covington, where Covington doesn't have big power. He just doesn't. He has insane volume. Absolutely insane volume, uh, but he also needs this to be a little bit closer, I think, in proximity. At 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 the end of punching distance, Usman is, he's got more. If these two get into the pocket, I don't know how Usman's power will deal in more confined spaces. Uh, 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 just a thought about where this fight, the distance this fight might take place at. Um, I also expect Covington to try and wrestle in this fight. Kamaru Usman has bad knees. He's been open about it. It's why he wrestles the way he wrestles. Watch Kamaru Usman in some of these fights. He doesn't shoot a double leg from outside. His knees are bad. He needs... He likes to be close. He either bends over to just grab a single leg and force connection, or he punches into a clinch and then starts working from there. From there, he can change levels without having to use his knees too much. And he can use, you know, trips and upper body manipulation uh, much easier. If Colby can make him wrestle, especially if we do a high paced wrestling round for the first round. You know, then start mixing in the striking, then mix you know, again, striking and then mixing in the wrestling and making things less predictable, that's a path to victory for him, I think. So I I think he's gonna try and force this to be more scrambly, active wrestling. And frankly, I think that's a smart idea. If nothing else, it's untested waters for Kamaru Usman in the UFC. Nobody's been able to do that to him. And given how good a wrestler Covington is, it's a thought. And I also think Covington knows his back is against the wall here. You've already got a loss to this guy. If you lose again here... You are probably, I mean probably, very probably, not getting another title shot as long as he's champion. And if you're Covington, I don't know what that means for your future. Because, look, you may not like Covington's shtick. I'm not here to advocate for it, but he's a very good fighter and if you find yourself in we call it the rich franklin position that's where you find yourself you got to ask yourself some hard questions sometimes so i think he knows his back is against the wall here and i think he's going to try some stuff that maybe other people haven't as far as my pick goes for whatever it's worth i i don't think there's anyone right now you could put in front of Kamaru Usman that I would pick to beat him somebody's gonna do it at some point and frankly Covington might do it here I would not shock me who do I favor I favor Kamaru Usman I favor Kamaru Usman over that division is there somebody that's going to beat him at some point yes could it be Covington here yes it very, it could. It really could. But, Likelihood? Eh, I don't know. I favor Usman. I feel comfortable favoring Usman. I feel comfortable favoring Usman over that division. That's going to bite me at some point. It might bite me here, but that's where I stand. That's your main event. Uh, it's definitely, definitely one that we're going to have to pay attention to. All right, co-main event. An immediate rematch between newly crowned women's strawweight champion Rose Namajunas and Zhang Wei Li. Uh, Namajunas head kicked Zhang earlier this year and stopped her in the first round. How long ago was that? Uh, April of this year. I, mean, I mentioned this before. Fun fact about Rose: a full 50% of her UFC fights have been have involved a title, either challenging for or defending a title. <laughs> Some variety. Um, I don't love the immediate rematch. I don't think it's necessary. You get stopped in the first round non-controversially. Sorry, you got to win at least one more before you get back there. But the UFC likes Zhang. They like what she does for the Chinese market. And here we are. It's It's not like Zhang had some long record of achievement as champion. She didn't. She had one title defense. Granted, epic fight. But one title defense... Uh, again, there's there's a little bit of favoritism going on here. Um, I don't think this will look like their first fight. Start there. It might. Um, Zhang has a, the way Zhang moves her legs back to try and avoid leg kicks, uh, which is what she did that led to the head kick that Rose landed. That's a demonstrated habit she has. That's a tendency. Um, so. Rose might try that same thing again. I don't know that it'll work this time, but she'll probably try it. She'd be... any Anytime you have an observed habit in a fighter like that, you'd be kind of stupid not to try and exploit it. But I, I also don't know that it'll work quite as effectively this time around. So while I don't think we're going to see another first round stoppage that'll look very similar, I do still favor Rose Namajunas, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Zhang needs an opponent who will meet her on her terms, I think. And when someone does, um, she has a great chin, she has power, and she is willing to walk into the fire. Look, she and Yoanna put each other through hell. I thought Yoanna won that fight, for whatever my scorecard's worth. But... She's not great at pursuing. Um, If you look at people who try to draw her forward, they tend to have more success. She's not great about cutting off the cage. Uh, And this worked for her against, you know, uh, Jessica Andrade, because Andrade is a... Andrade is a tank who charges full speed ahead at you. She just ran into a very, very powerful counter from Zhang, and that led to the end of the fight. In the and you want, Look, you want to meet Joanna toe-to-toe, she will meet you there. That's kind of what she does. Those two just... They didn't have a lot of cage craft in that fight. They just kind of squared up. They'd move a little bit, but they just kind of clashed over and over and over and over again. And ultimately that led to Zhang winning a decision. But Rose doesn't fight that way. Um, Namunis is a very, very slick fighter. Now, with the power that Zhang possesses... You know, she can find Rose's chin. And that could be a very serious problem. But I don't think... I don't think Zhang possesses the type of... Consistent, thudding power that Andras represents. And that is... She doesn't fight like Andras either. You know, Andras will kind of bite down and throw some hooks and keep forcing things and try to get physical. I, I think Zhang should. Zhang should try to fight this at closer distance. Zhang is a very strong woman. Uh, and she, I don't feel, I feel pretty comfortable saying she's stronger than Rose Yunus. Just pure physical strength. You have to find a way to bring that to bear. Now, if you're Jessica Andrade, that means you kind of lose some round striking, but you're able to make Rose fight at an unsustainable pace in terms of minding all of her technical P's and Q's. You bang the body when you can. You transition that into head work as your feet slow down. And her propensity for being you know, a little bit bouncy into the pocket, try to angle. Like That just, it leads to a lot of success against Andrade, but it's not sustainable because inevitably you make a couple of mistakes and then you're screwed. Zhang, like I said, she doesn't fight like Jessica Andrade does, and that I think you need to fight kind of like that to give her problems, or you need to be a very strong wrestler who can force. Look, Rose knows how to grapple. I don't mean to imply that she doesn't, but forcing Rose to be on her back and to fight out, fight out from that position, uh, I, I just, it's something I'd like. I think we need to see. There's also not a lot of strong wrestlers at 115. So, if Xiong, if Zhang is able to force a lot of clinches, maybe get on top, that could very well be a winning strategy for her. But Namajunas' footwork, her range... Uh, Nama Yunus is a lanky fighter. Um, and Zhang's propensity for being purely angular... It was a little bit the problem that Ioana ran into. You know, Ioana, as the matador, is great about circling and L-stepping and not getting all that caught up against the fence most of the time. Ioana coming forward, which she did a little bit more often than not against uh, Rose in their rematch, uh, a little bit angular. It's why she and Zhang kept running into each other, kept colliding the way that they did. And I think trying to collide with Rose Namajunas like that's a poor decision. She, her tech, her footwork in particular is a bit too slick. You know, I kid to keep bringing up Andrade, but Andrade is not. If she's walking you down, she's a little bit straight. But she's a little bit better about not planting to throw strikes, uh, and then just kind of trying to retreat yeah again Zhang and Ioana would get into striking range. they would both kind of set on their heels, fire their combination and then just retreat that that's not what Andraj does as a style. Uh, it is a little bit what Zhang does and i I just don't think that that's a, a reliably winning proposition against Rose nama Yunus. so i'm I'm picking Nam Yunus here. I don't think we're gonna see another first round knockout, but who knows? I'm picking Rose, but... Uh... Decent enough fight. Okay. Next up. Lightweights. (laughs) Somebody's gonna die. Justin Gaethje and Michael Chandler. Ooh, baby. I am so sad this wasn't one of our Fight Night main events in October. Give these two maniacs five rounds and spare me having to watch Aspen Ladd and Norma Dumont for five rounds. Uh... Pfft. These two guys are going to go to war. Um, Look, Michael Chandler... Chandler's got an odd fighting style. He doesn't mind slugging it out, but if you watch his fights, if he can't get you out of there slugging it out quickly, he goes into wrestling mode. And... It's not that he can't wrestle. He's a pretty good MMA wrestler. But it's an odd little quirk of his that I think might be a problem for him here. Both men hit hard. Uh, Both men... I think Michael Chandler's chin is a little bit more compromised than Gagey's. And I think that's going to be a problem for him. Um, Gagey's slightly more patient bent that he's taken lately. I think is a real problem for Chandler. If Gagey were still the crazy volume, walk through the hail of arrows, don't care all-action, all-the-time brawler that he used to be, I think Chandler could beat that guy. The way Gagey fights now, which is a little bit more intelligent pressure, a little bit more willingness to be selective with his shots, I... I favor Gagey here. Uh, I think Chandler's chin, again. I think his chin's not quite what it used to be. And I think that'll be a problem for him. But... That's gonna be great for as long as it lasts. Those two maniacs, uh, yes, please. Uh, Favorite Gagey, can't wait for that fight. Uh, also at featherweight, Shane Burgos and Billy Quarantillo. That's gonna be nuts. Um, Burgos fights at a crazy pace. He's on a two-fight losing streak, and he and Edson Barboza had a heck of a fight uh, before Barboza just finally got to the, <laughs> finally got his body to stop. <laughs> Uh, Quarantillo is, I think he's undefeated in the UFC. No, he lost to Gavin Tucker. Uh, Quarantillo's a little bit, uh, again, a lot of action. A little bit wild with his punches. I think Burgos can capitalize on that. Likes to wrestle. Um, I should pick Billy Quarantillo here. I really should. I'm gonna pick Burgos and just I'm prepared to feel stupid about that one. And kicking off the main card, great fight here. Frankie Edgar and Marlon Vera. Um, Edgar was last seen being knocked out by Corey Sandhagen. Good lord, that knee. (laughs) One of the best knockouts of the year. Now that was back in February. Whereas Vera... Beat Davy Grant his last time out... His only loss at bantamweight, I think, in a while, actually, um, was to Jose Aldo. Hmm, how do I think these two match up? It's a tough fight. Uh, it's always hard when a fighter is at kind of at Frankie Edgar's career point here. There's still, a, there's still glimmers of who they used to be, but they're also clearly on the downside. And you can just kind of emotional and logic yourself into picking them in places where you shouldn't. That said, Vera can be out-wrestled. And what makes Frankie Edgar's game sing is his ability to blend striking and wrestling. He's got to be able to do both. He's got to be able to do both with a modicum of success, because if look, how does Jose Aldo beat Frankie Edgar consistently? Because he his takedown defense was good enough that he could so he could force Edgar into just being a striker, and he was a much better striker. Someone who's a much better uh, grappler can force Edgar to just be a striker. Watch the Brian Ortega fight. Uh, or vice versa. If you can make Frankie Edgar fight only one way, that's a bit of a problem for him. Now, again, the problem is Vera can be out-wrestled. He's a dangerous fighter. He's a long fighter. Um, I'm going to pick Edgar, and I'm just, I'm going to potentially feel stupid about that one. That's just how that is. But I'm I'm not going to be shocked if Vera wins. Marlon Vera is a very good fighter. So that's your main card. Not a dud among them. Not on paper. Um great main card. As for the prelims, Alex Pereja will fight Andreas Michalidis. Is this? Yeah, this is the Glory the former Glory Glory kickboxing champion. The only man who's knocked out um Israel Adesanya. Uh, they fought a couple of times in kickboxing. One decision he won was a little bit uh, I didn't agree with. I've seen the fight since then. I've I've gone through the effort of looking it up. Um, but yeah, when he I mean then he knocked him out. He was losing their their rematch, but he did get the win via knockout. So yeah, that's kind of ultimately what matters. Um, dangerously powerful striking. Um, Whereas Michaelides uh one and one, I think in the UFC. Little bit of a setup here, to be candid. But if if Pereja's not up to speed on his you know, in his fence wrestling in particular, Michelades might give him problems. I'm gonna pick Pereja, but yeah, we'll see. Uh lightweight, Ally Aquinta and Bobby Green. That's not a bad fight. Um I still don't have a handle on Ally Iaquinta. Hasn't fought since October of 2019 when he got beat by Dan Hooker. Um, Green's been a little up and down lately. I'm going to pick Green, but not sold on that That That's a competitive fight. Middleweight, Phil Hawes and Chris Curtis. I'm going to lean towards Hawes. Also middleweight, Edmund Shabazian and Nasruddin Imovov. Uh, might be put up a shut up time for Shabazian. On a two-fight losing streak. Got stopped by Derek Brunson. Lost a clear-cut decision to Jack Hermanson. Uh, fortunately for him, uh, Imovov is not a wrestler by trade. He is, however, a pretty good striker. Um, I think I'm going to pick Imovov, but... Look, my... Shabazian's doing the kind of typical Coach Edmund student thing, where his natural ability will get him to a specific level, and then as soon as everyone kind of figures him out and he needs actual coaching and adjustments, he can't make them because that's not really what Edmund Tarverdian does. And he might be at that point of that particular life cycle already. He might have a few more tricks for still. And Imavov might just also be not good enough to really make an issue out of it, so we'll have to see. I'm gonna pick Imavov, but I'm prepared to look stupid. Welterweight Ian Gary and Jordan Williams. Gonna lean towards Williams there. Then, oh god. On the early prelims, John Volante is fighting Chris Barnett. Why is John Volante in the UFC? They're back at he- he's at heavyweight now because he's lazy. I shouldn't say it like that, but... yeah, He's on a three-fight losing streak. Um, he is two and six in his last eight fights. Last win was in 2018, and he got a split decision over Ed Herman in a god-awful fight. Before that, it was a split decision over Francisco Barroso in another terrible fight. He hasn't had a finish since 2016... And watch the promotional hype here Being dangerous finisher, John Volante. Five freaking years without a finish. Dangerous striker. Cut this, man. I don't like calling for fighters' jobs as a general rule. I really don't. But why is this guy still on the roster? Picking Chris Barnett, I don't care. This has to be win or go home for Volante. It has to. Light heavyweight Alexa Kamer and John Allen. Uh, Kamer had a bit of hype when he came in, and he's dropped two in a row. He kind of needs a win. I think I'll pick him here, just kind of because. And kicking off everything, we have CJ Vergara and Ode Osborne. uh, Flyweight. Osborne's been up and down in the UFC a little bit. Um, Vergara, I believe, is making his debut going to confirm that very quick here. I am mostly sure that's correct. Yes. Okay. He's on a decent winning streak. He's coming in off the contender series. Um, yeah, I don't actually mind picking him here. Ode Osborne's been, like I said, a little up and down. Um, we've had a few announced bouts fall out. We d- this this event does not need any more bouts than it currently has. We were supposed to get a fight between Irina Aldana and Jermaine Durandamy. That's off. I don't think... And if they haven't found... They've had since September to find a replacement for Aldana, and they haven't yet, so I imagine she's just going to be bumped to a later card. Uh Sean Strickland was supposed to fight Luke Rockhold on this, f- on this card. That fell out. Um... Yeah, Rockhold had a back issue. Um, That's been out... We've known that for a bit, so again, I imagine if we haven't had an announcement yet, Strickland will probably have to fight somebody else later. And... In theory, there's a fight... This one should probably... We'll probably wind up on the card. A featherweight bout between Melsic Bogdasarian and Bruno Souza. Um, Bogdasarian was supposed to fight somebody else... Uh, Silva's stepping in on short notice. Um, again, I don't have that on the bout order yet, but I don't mind picking Bogdasari in there. So yeah, pretty long card actually in terms of total fights, but uh, look, we've all suffered a lot so that UFC 267 and our UFC 268 can be really good cards. So Saturday evening, I will have coverage of that in the 411, excuse me, in the MMA zone of 411mania.com. So please do stop by and say hello. I appreciate it. Uh, okay, I think that's it. I will check Twitter one time and see if anything crazy has happened. If not, we will get into plugs and get out of here. Nope. Alrighty. What do I got? Well, last week, there was a damn you Hollywood for Darius Villain Views. His name, I, I can't pronounce that gentleman's name correctly. I've been calling him Villanueva for a while, but turns out he's French-Canadian, and the more French-Canadian pronunciation of that last name is more uh, villain View, so my apologies. Well, we Mark Rattelich, David Wright, and I reviewed his take on Dune, so Dune part one. So you can listen to that. And that was it for my podcast. I covered my usual spate of professional wrestling stuff. So this week... I will be covering A.W.'s Dark Elevation on Monday. There will also be a Damn You Hollywood for Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. The mm, kind of time-traveling ghost thriller movie that he released. Uh, I will be seeing that tomorrow, and then we'll be talking about it. Tuesday there will be a Damn You Hollywood for the Paramount Plus, I think, exclusive film, Paranormal Activity Next of Kin. Ugh. And then Friday there will be a triple feature. Myself and Mark Radilich will review three highly uh three big, you know, critical and Oscar winners from last year. Nomadland, Mank, and the Father. Because we got to that on a on a really weird tangent. We'll tell the full story there. But if you want to hear our thoughts on some more um, I'll put on a Slightly more officious, condescending tune. Our more nuanced take on valuable cinema. You can listen to us talk about those three movies on Friday. And as for my other stuff, again the normal spate of professional wrestling, that's AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday, MLW Fusion Alpha on Wednesdays, and SmackDown on Fridays, plus UFC sixty eight two sixty eight on Saturday. Um, If you're interested in boxing, uh, Saturday also will be Canelo Alvarez trying to fully unify the super middleweight division titles. He has three of the four relevant belts at 168 pounds. He will be fighting Caleb Plant for the last one. And I've got some news. You see, I intercepted the courier who was going to uh who was dropping off the scorecards the other day so we might get actually fair judging instead of a bunch of phoned in scorecards uh mark and one of the new guys dan um forget the gentleman's last name lasby lazenby want to say something like that starts with an l i apologize to you sir no offense intended uh mark and him and dan will be covering that if you wanted to do some watch-along stuff with the two of them for canelo that's it for me. Thank you all very much for dealing with this absurdly long podcast. I will be back here next week to review UFC 268, deal with all of that fallout, and preview... And preview? Uno momento. And preview, yes, double-checking the... week the November things get touchy. There's some weeks off here and there, but... Um So we will preview next week. UFC on ESPN plus 55. Max Holloway versus Yair Rodriguez. Um, That's not the worst card in the world. We look at the supporting cast. Song Dong and Julio Arce should be a good fight. Um, Tiago Moises and Joel Alvarez isn't bad. Miguel Baeza and Chaos Williams. Definitely paying attention to that one. Uh, And Flyweight, both women in pretty bad need of a win, Andrea Lee and Cynthia Calvillo. Um, So there's some decent stuff there. We'll have a full preview next week, so come back then. Until then, I thank you again very very much. I appreciate you all. Stay safe out there, and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.